The issues that matter most, right here. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Now, those Russian forces are deployed on three sides of Ukraine, but Moscow is denying a British government report that it wants to install a puppet government in the country. The U.S. State Department has ordered families of American diplomats to get out of the country now. They've advised all private U.S. citizens to do the same, along with non-essential American embassy personnel. Most Ukrainians are far from wealthy. Now their freedom and their young democracy are threatened by their colossal neighbor. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Welcome back. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Ed Morrissey of HotAir.com. Filling in for Drew today, taking your calls at 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. Many, many developments going on in Eastern Europe on the Russian frontier. Uh, the United States is starting to pull personnel and families out of the diplomatic posting in Kiev. And the Russians are very, very uh, much insisting on a whole lot of concessions from the United States to prevent an on uh, to prevent an invasion or an incursion. Joining us to discuss this is Dr. Jeffrey Shaw. He's the president of the Alexandrian Defense Group, an expert in counterinsurgency warfare, and he's written and spoken widely about U.S. military involvement in Vietnam and the Middle East. He is the author of the book, The Last Mandate of Heaven, The American Betrayal of No Dinh Diem, President of Vietnam, published by Ignatius Press. You can find out more at alexandriadefense.org. Dr. Shaw, thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me again. So, Dr. Shaw, I mean, I think we should start off by uh, taking a look at what the competing interests are here. I, I think that there's a, a lot of very complicated history regarding Russia yeah. and Ukraine that maybe a lot of people in the West aren't really aware of, but also a lot of complicated history of more recent uh, vintage in Eastern Europe that we are very, very painfully aware of. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I'll give you the 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 uh, we used to call it the Coles Notes version of the <laughs> of what's going on in uh, the history there. Um, Ukraine has never been a, a united country per se. Its its name really means the borderland, and as I've said before, you have to ask yourself the borderland of what? Well, or between what? Between the Russian Empire under the old czars and the Lithuanian and Polish empires and Habsburgs to the west and often the um, Ottomans to the south. Uh, so it's always been a, 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 a clashing point almost. And, and when I've been there, you notice the difference between East and West Ukraine. For he heaven's sakes, the, even the cultural, the dress, everything, they use a more Polish pattern on everything in the West and Russian in the East. And Russian is the language in the East, whereas Ukrainian, which is really a Slavic derivation of Polish in the West. So it gives you some, and that's very, I mean, I was there in 2013 and 2017. So that gives you an idea of what's going on in terms of just diverse cultures. And, um, there's hangovers from the second world war with this, this Azov battalion, which is, uh, seems to have corralled Mr. Karin, uh, Karinsky, <laughs> Zelensky <laughs> right. going to the Russian Revolution there. Uh, Zelensky <laughs> into a corner. I mean, Zelensky came in with the idea that he wanted peace with Russia and they were going to just tone down everything in the Donbass. And the next thing we know, he, he's pounding the war drum and, and, uh, and actually in, increasing troops in the Donbass. 
So you have to ask yourself what's going on there. Well, I think he did want peace, but I just think the radical forces in Ukraine are too strong. Which leads us to the other problem. This always happens when you have coups. It's not like you get suddenly a, a, a nice, mild government. It seems to me every time the U.S. State Department has gone to the coup cupboard, they've come up with something much worse than what was there before. Well, even though they think it's going to be nice, it never ends up being so. I mean, you take your pick, Libya, what happened in Iran, yes. uh, South Vietnam. Every time they think, oh, that'll be the fix. Just get rid of this corrupt guy and we'll have, in, you know, we'll have democracy. Well, it never works out. Well, uh, Iran, Ukraine too. Is a, I mean, Mossadegh, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Yeah. Precisely. And, and America wasn't, you know, the State Department wasn't alone on that. That was the, the British were in on that one, too. Right, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, they all had interests there. And, and, and it just keeps uh, piling up. Um, yes, we have bad memories from the days of the Soviet Union when the Ukraine was uh, literally the, the Kulak, the rising middle class of you know, farmers who were doing very well were, were absolutely crushed, murdered, and starved to death en masse. But that happened in Russia, too. And one of the prime architects in Ukraine was done by a Ukrainian himself, Khrushchev. Was, uh, I've seen the actual notes where he, you know, he is encouraging people on to, 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 to crush any rebellion amongst the, uh, the kulaks. So it's, it's a very violent terrain uh, full of... If I have to think of... Um, uh, how shall I say, a more wasp-like version or hornet-like version of the Slavs, I think of the Ukrainians. They they tend to be uh, quite a bit more violent than the other Slavs. And uh, that doesn't make for a, a peaceful time. So you, you, you have this hard faction that's against the Soviets, uh, and it's no longer the Soviet Union, but the, the right. old memories, as I say. And, uh, you know, if you listen to, you know, the Azov Battalion, who got backed in the... 2014 uh, coup or putsch or whatever you want to call it because Ukraine did have an elected government granted corrupt but less corrupt than the one that got kicked out before that and now of course not calling Zelensky corrupt but there's so many under him that are corrupt but anyways the Azov battalion they want war they've stated it openly they want to fight with the Russians then you had uh, Yulia Tymoshenko, who used to be in government, but she went to jail for corruption herself for stealing, uh, saying how they would like to, she would like to take a Kalashnikov and shoot all the people in um, uh, in Donbass. And then you have uh, then you had Poroshenko saying how bragging about how other kids were going to school in Ukraine, but there will be no money or anything for for kids in the Donbass, and how other old people were getting their pensions in other parts of Ukraine, but there will be no pensions in Donbass. This is what they're doing to their own people, and these are the people who are backed up by the U.S. State Department. They're not good people. They're very violent people. And Russia just has said enough is enough. We we don't they don't really want Ukraine. It's a basket case. But what they have said is, uh, we you know with five minute flight time from certain missiles from Kiev to Moscow, they said we we cannot have uh, Western weaponry in there. That just destabilizes us. Right. So a, there, there it is in a nutshell. <laughs> well, yeah, and Dr. Shaw, appreciate the, I appreciate the nutshell because there, there's a lot to unpack here, and I think that sometimes yeah. we, we tend to see things without too much nuance, especially when it comes to that yeah. part of the world, and, uh, and sort of a, a feeling of Americans in general. And this is sort of um, 
this is what more or less touched this off too is that there was a lot of um there was a lot of effort to to extend nato right to the right to the borders of russia now when i say this i i am not justifying russian invasions mm-hmm. But right, we did right, the same. Right, right. We did the same thing in Georgia. We we tried to pull um, Georgia into into a relationship with NATO and and the EU, and that yeah. resulted in a in a Russian invasion and seizing of the borderlands to maintain That's the right. buffer. Uh, then yeah. we did the same thing in Ukraine about six years later or five years later, and um, and the um, we the same exact thing occurred. We tried to do the same thing in Belarus uh, with less yeah. effect. Uh, so these are the types of well, things that yeah, are... Yeah, the, 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 the head of Belarus, he's, he's one tough guy. He, he, he does not scare. That guy, he, when he try a coup on him, he, he literally was out in front of the crowds with the Kalashnikov himself and armored. <laughs> he, he's a yeah. tough guy. Typical Belarusian, I guess. But, uh, well, you know, typical sort of, you know, former Soviet sort of, yeah. sort of guy, too. Really so, I mean, yeah. you, know, yeah. we, you know, we saw that, and we've seen that in Kazakhstan, too, just recently, in fact, yeah. in Kazakhstan. Um, yeah. I mean, all these things are part of a piece with, with Putin. And um, yep. and so you, you run into that. At the same right. time, you have Putin, who is arguably overdoing it as well. I mean, one of the things that wasn't reported very well in the American media, but was reported in the Financial Times, is that part of Putin's demands here that, um, that they are um, putting on the table is not just that the U.S. stop meddling, well, NATO, NATO and the EU and the U.S., stop meddling in Ukraine and stop meddling in Belarus, but also they want a pullout um, back to the 1997 status quo ante, where you didn't have Romania, Bulgaria specifically. They mentioned both of those states specifically as part of the, mm-hmm. as part of NATO, as part of the EU, and they want forces pulled out of there as well. And that's something that we're simply not going to do. I mean, that's I mean, yeah, if, no, if that, nothing else for that for, was for their sort of their maximum demand. That was their maximum demand, and I think they rec- recognized that wasn't going to happen. But again, they they mentioned the same concern over the, the so-called air defense and whatnot systems that have been put into Romania that they can quickly be converted to offensive weapons and again, sure. uh, not that much fly time to to Russian territory. Um, but yeah, I think that was their maximum demand. And just as in all negotiations, you always throw in more than you expect to get. Well, but sure. I, 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 I think the bottom line comes, still comes down to Ukraine. And, there, and there's a reason for Ukraine. They don't mind Latvia and all. Well, they do mind. But it's very hard, to, op, to, as the Germans found out, to open up a massive operation through that area, through the Baltic, into Russia, as you run into some tough terrain that's just not you know, uh, tank-worthy. But Ukraine is perfect tank country, as the Germans also <laughs> right. discovered. Uh, and you can, you know, other than the big river like the Dnieper and the Don, you can roll right into the Don area uh, over. And I've seen this terrain, and I've been on those battlefields there, and it is uh, it's battlefield country. That's probably why everybody likes to fight their wars there. But um, it's uh, and it goes on and on and on like that for right. hundreds of miles. So uh, that's why, you know, in just a classical conventional military sense, the, the Russian alarm bells go off. I mean, what, what we don't realize over here is that during the Second World War, they lost in excess of 22, some are saying 23 million people. They, we can't, every family lost people. And, right. and the Germans just 
steamrolled through there and uh, lit the place on fire. And, uh, you know, yeah, granted, a lot of the mistakes were thanks to Stalin's, uh, you know, having purged the army of all its senior officer corps. Well, and, well, and not to mention the Ribbentrop-Molotov, not to mention the Ribbentrop-Molotov yeah. uh, agreement, yeah. which basically catalyzed World War II in that yeah. region. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. So there's there's uh, the, the the Russian memory of that they call it the Great Patriotic War. Well, that's true, um, and uh, it, it's just um, that's just burned into their their consciousness. And the idea of Ukraine being in somebody else's hands just it raises red flags, red lights, whatever you want to call it, all over the place. Right. Well, I mean, I, I mean, we can we can debate on how legitimate that is, but we should have been cognizant of that when we started doing this outreach for you know EU and NATO to the states that yeah. literally yeah. border on a... on Russia. I mean, that's that that we should have known better. We should have at least known that that was going to trigger some sort of a reaction. And I think initially, you know, in the 1997, 1998, you know, the Boris uh, Yeltsin era. Uh, mm-hmm. Russia was so um, was so bankrupted by the collapse yeah. of the Soviet Union that they just didn't. They were too busy looking internally that, than to worry yeah. about what was on their frontier. Um, but yeah. you know, Putin is a very different kind of guy than than Boris Yeltsin was, and I don't think that. I think we had now four American administrations that really haven't caught up to that fact until maybe. No, now. and they're yeah, no, and they're they're playing with a with a guy who um, he has. He has a long-term vision for Russia, and uh, um, yeah, they they haven't caught up on that. But it, also talking of Ukraine, I mean, it's like you know, my understanding of the State Department is that once they get a policy idea in their head, it's like trying to turn the Titanic around. It just doesn't like to turn around, and it goes through you know various administrations. Uh, you know, we we heard President Trump say, "Look, I, it wouldn't be a bad." If we got along with Russia, it'd be in fact it wouldn't be a bad thing at all. It'd be a great thing for America because it would possibly, you know, you do not want China and Russia united, and yet that's what this policy from the State Department's been doing. It's been driving Russia into the arms of China. So you've got Eurasia tied up with an enemy block. How does that help America? I fail to see, but. this policy we saw in the early 2000s, you know, the orange revolutions and the colored revolutions in Ukraine and the kind of people who were – these people were being backed by the State Department. And they got a lot of money from the State Department, ultimately from Uncle Sam. And uh, it's – to my mind, it's been a policy that should have been stopped when, when that failed in corruption. But yet it's just carried on. Like I say, like the Titanic just heading for that iceberg. And I think it's approaching the iceberg, as far we as I speak- can see. We're speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Shaw of AlexandriaDefense.org, taking your calls at 888-914-9149. We have a dissenting phone call from Eugene in Chicago, Illinois. Eugene, welcome sure. to the show. Thank you. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, with all due respect to Dr. Shaw, I mean, some of the comments that he makes. So, I mean, first of all, generalizing on people and saying the Ukrainian people are violent people. It's incredible to hear that. And then uh, hearing that the language that is spoken in the West is a mix of Polish and something else. Ukrainian is a, it's come from Staroslovianskamova, which means all Slavic language, and it's one of the most pure languages 
in the, the based in the Slavic original language, and it's not spoken by the Russian, and not spoken by the Poles. And the West and the Eastern Ukraine is so different because population was replaced by after the Holodomor, which is when in 1932-33, the Ukrainian people were exterminated, basically, and replaced by Russia, not by Khrushchev, which, which came a lot later, but by a gentleman by the name of Kaganovich executed the plans of Stalin. So, you know, I mean, if we're going to speak so generally, like this is the frontier, I mean, such a such an offensive way of, of talking about Ukraine is really unacceptable. And somebody at least should read Wikipedia and maybe something so basic like Wikipedia will inform this gentleman of what is Ukraine. Okay, okay, Eugene, thank you very much oh, yeah. for your call. I want, to, I, want, I, yeah. I want to give Dr. Shaw an, an opportunity to respond to that, and then I want to talk a little sure. bit about what's going on right now in, in, in terms of diplomacy. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, I don't read Wikipedia. In fact, <laughs> I try to stay away from it as much as possible because it has its own slant. Now, the, um, uh, as far as the, the language goes, well, okay, we can we can go on about that, but to say it's the purest form of Slav, I don't know. That's okay. That's a Ukrainian perspective. Then, uh, as far as the Holodomor and what went on there, our uh, listener needs to remember too that it wasn't just who brought about the kulaks. Where does it come from? It wasn't just Ukrainian. That came about from the the uh, the Tsar's minister of the interior. Uh, which is really like the prime minister, uh, who brought about the peasant land bank, and actually with the with with the freeing of the serfs in Russia and Ukraine, and really at that time I don't know where the separate Ukraine was, but uh, with the freeing of the serfs and the peasant land bank and the ability to get uh, and purchase uh, territory uh, farms, if you will, small farms. And they started to do well. And, of course, you can read in the communist papers, you know, Lenin and, the, and his henchmen were saying, we've got to stop this guy uh, uh, um, because if, if he carries on like this, you know, our revolution will fail. So they went after, um, oh, I forget his name now. Um, oh, I know it so well, unfortunately. He, he, uh, and they killed him. And uh, but the, by by this time, the peasant uh, that we call the kulaks were were already doing quite well and had their own farms and were were were, were uh, expanding. I guess you would say financially, uh, never having had anything. And then we have Lenin's revolution come in, and he tries st- uh, stomping down on that, and there's revolts over that, and he doesn't complete the the uh, the task, and so they back off for a while. But Stalin comes in, and as we all know, Stalin does not back off. And he, anybody who doesn't uh, go with that, they're either starved. Many were chased into the forest. The forests were lit on fire. Anybody who came out, they were shot. Yes, that was the Holodomor. Guess what? It also happened in Russia, too, down in their farming area. And so it wasn't just a U against the Ukrainian, though. The whole thing was the Soviet Communist Party and its idea of collectivization and what... Uh, 
a collectivized uh, farming economy should look like, which was a total right. the, disaster. The five-year plans and the, the forest collectivization. Yeah, it was a total right. disaster. So it wasn't – to just say this happened to Ukraine is inaccurate. It, it's, uh, it, it included all, all peasant farmers and, and under the Soviets. And remembering this, too – that the head, the heads in Russia at that time of, or shall we say, the Soviet Union, they weren't Russians. The, the Stalin was a Georgian, and they're sort of like the Corsicans of, uh, of uh, the Caucasus, or if you will, the Sicilians. And, and his henchman, Beria, you know, Levant, Levant, I can't say his name properly, Beria. He, um, you know, who engineered the uh, slaughter of the the uh, Polish. Um, uh, cavalry, uh, or I shouldn't say cavalry, but their officer corps, 20,000 of them and, and pinned it on the Germans. Again, a Georgian. So, you know, the Russians have been just as much under the thumb of that, that horrible uh, apparatus that we call uh, the Soviet government as the Ukrainians were. As for saying the, uh, you know, dis- disparaging against the Ukrainians, well, I'm not trying to do that by any stretch of the imagination. It has been a very violent area. It's a blood-soaked country, and there's no denying it. From the Mongols uh, through from the Tatars and and, and the fights with the, with the Ottomans, it, it I, I can't say I can get around it. Heck, even Napoleon, uh, you know, had some of his major battles there. Uh, well, Dr. Shaw, before at, before we get before we yeah. run out of time because we've only got about a minute left. Yeah, I mean, sure, what, sure. what do you what do you suppose the the um, the move is next in terms of um, diplomacy here? The U.S. is pulling out diplomatic staff. The U, the EU says they don't see, really see a need to do that at the moment. Uh, is mm-hmm. there is there room for di- diplomacy still left here? And what form do you think it would take? Um, yeah, there's there still is, and it's and it's going to involve. Uh, you know, more than saying, "Well, we'll put off um, bringing Ukraine into NATO for 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 uh, ten years." It's going to have to say, "Okay, I, I don't know how they're going to come to that without losing face." But you know, that's what happens when you drive up against an iceberg. By the way, for your listeners' historical references, look up Minister Stolypin. He was the one who really brought about freedom for the peasant farmers in Ukraine and Russia. He was the guy who came up with the land bank. Um, the uh, the other thing about about going on now uh, with what can be done diplomatically, well, keep talking is a good thing. Um, quit saying that Biden's weak. I'm seeing that in Fox News all the time. That that's not helping. Uh, you know, whether he's weak or strong is is is, is irrelevant. You're, you're still up against a power that has more nuclear warheads in America and certainly has the delivery vehicles too. So it's ridiculous to, to get into a conflict with Russia and it'd be ridiculous for Russia to get into a conflict with the U S I mean, both can obliterate each other. And there's, you know, then all I see the disaster for that I see, and I've seen it since 2013 um, is Western meddling has only made Ukraine poor. When we were there in 2013, you could get, uh, uh, one, uh, seven Grivny got you one U.S. dollar. When we were back there, 2017, it was now 26 Grivny got you one U.S. dollar, and the corruption was everywhere. It, it had magnified by it by an exponential number. So it's it, you know, I'd yeah, say, I, leave I, Ukraine alone. 
I, 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 I understand that point, and I think that um, the, the, the brinksmanship that we're seeing now is a culmination of um, very much miscalculations on both sides. Dr. Jeffrey Shaw, again, thank you so much for being with us. Dr. Jeffrey Shaw, you can find out more about Dr. Jeffrey Shaw at alexandriadefense.org and, of course, his book, The Lost Mandate of Heaven, and which you can get from Ignatius Press. When we come back, we're going to be talking about inflation with my friend King Banyan. I'm Ed Morrissey, filling in for Drew. We'll be right back. Catholic Order of Foresters is proud to sponsor the Relevant Radio Studio line. For information about employment opportunities and flexible premium life insurance plans, visit relevantradio.com slash Forrester. All the issues, one place. one place. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. It's 31 minutes past the hour. I'm Ed Morrissey of HotAir.com, filling in for Drew, taking your calls at 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. After a very spirited discussion with uh, Dr. Jeffrey Shaw uh, regarding Ukraine, I am very happy to bring on my friend King Banyan, who's the dean of the School of Public Affairs at St. Cloud State University. He's an economics professor there as well. He's also a senior policy fellow of the Center of the American Experiment in Minneapolis and served one term as a state representative. He's also the host of the King Banyan Show on KYCR in Minneapolis and also uh, has quite a bit of knowledge about Ukraine, as it turns out as well. King, welcome back. Well, thank you, Ed. So good to talk with you again. Hope everything's well with you today. I, it, I, it is, and uh, I'm blessed to be here, and I'm very blessed that you're here with us. You know, before we get to the economy, I just maybe just to wrap up a little bit on on Ukraine, uh, if you don't mind. I mean, I'm I know that you've you've been there, you've traveled there, you've advised different um, uh, different policymakers there uh, on occasion, and I'm I'm wondering how you see uh, the situation in Ukraine and what the way is out of that, if there is one. Well, I I don't know that I can cast any light on a way out of it. I think the only thing to point out is that Ukraine and Russia are in, are intertwined uh, and unable to come apart. Indeed, many people would argue that the uh, that that Russia began in Kiev in the capital of Ukraine. I, some Russians will will re, will reject that notion. I I understand, but Kiev was a city before Moscow was. Uh, by about 150 years. Uh, and so uh, the the way to think of it really is that Ukraine, is, there was a book about Ukraine by Anna Reid written many years ago called Borderlands. It is the borderland of Russia. And so anyone, anything coming up to their border and into Ukraine is a concern to them. And at least in the estimation of, of, uh, of Mr. Putin, uh, NATO in Ukraine is is like putting the putting the uh, is like putting a demon at your door, uh, and so and so they they have reacted quite negatively to that. Uh, Ukrainians, I think, uh, believe that their country should be independent. They believe, you know, and it really is an interesting country insofar as what you find in the in the western half of Ukraine is a very very uh, Ukrainian nationalistic area that it has a very distinct feel from russia if you go to further east the more east you 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 see to them 
feeling and talking. There's more Russian spoken in the eastern part of the country than the western part. It's a large place. It's the size of Afghanistan. Uh, and I, I make that comparison for a pretty good reason. Uh, Afghanistan didn't turn out well for Russia. Uh, I don't know that uh, Ukraine would turn out much better, even though it's an entirely different terrain. It's a very, it's a very large space for a Russian invasion to happen. So I'm, I am, cons- I am, I'm watching it carefully. But what solves this issue? Boy, I don't know. I just know that that uh, Russia does view this as sort of as sort of a, a non-negotiable. It has to it has to feel safe in its borderland areas, and is you can see that happening all the way all the way from Kazakhstan, where you had enough you had some some outbreak of uh, vi- political violence a few weeks ago to right. the South Caucasus and Armenia, and now to now all the way over to Ukraine. Well, in Georgia in 2008, you know, and uh, yep. I mean, so, I mean, this is of a piece again, like I was talking with Dr. Shaw earlier, and this is perhaps some miscalculations in the West have, have exacerbated these tensions. But I mean, the, the Russians are always going to react very strongly to uh, to that type of influence on its own border. And and I think yep. that this is what we're seeing. This is this is the this is the reaction uh, and it may not have been avoidable, but I think it's important to understand all of the different pieces that are in play here, not just the U.S. pieces. Yeah, yeah it's the U.S. pieces. It's the. It, it, I mean, I think one thing that this is exposed to, so that any interest observer could see, is I think I think President Putin is, uh, and maybe this was maybe if not the primary reason, certainly a, a benefit to him. He's been able to expose a division within NATO between what U.S. Want, what the U.S. wants and maybe what uh, France wants on the one hand and what Germany wants on the other. Right. Uh, because because uh, that that's pretty evidently different. And I suspect that's a benefit to, the, to President Putin, even if it should turn out that he doesn't choose to go into Ukraine, further into Ukraine, I should say. We're speaking with King Banyan, who is the uh, host of the King Banyan Show on KYCR in Minneapolis. And now let's turn to the economy, because I, I, I was... I was sort of interested to read in the Washington Post today. The Washington Post had an article about how uh, inflation has really not just wiped out all the wage gains over the past year. It's really gone well beyond wiping out the wage gains. Um, The headline on their piece was that raise meant nothing. And this is the type of thing that we had actually been kind of warning about since the first CARES Act was passed, the the first major COVID relief bill. Uh, was passed was the fact that we were setting in motion um, some uh, interesting incentives. I'll just put it that way, that would eventually create a, a a labor cost inflation that would impact the economy. There's more than there's more than that that's going on here, though. Um, the The idea that you were going to get wage gains out of this was supposedly a selling point, but those wage gains are gone now. I mean, they're they're completely gone. Yes, they are. And, and some of that is a statistical, kind of a statistical artifact about, the, you know, because we right. haven't talked about what the wage gains were a year ago, because those were real wage gains in 2020. They're not real wage gains in 2021, because in some sense, the wages had to catch up or, or prices had to catch up to all the wage gains that happened in the second half of 2020 as you tr- started to try to induce people to come back into the labor force, particularly in low wage service, service sector jobs 
which had been really slammed in terms of the amount of employment that happened there beforehand. But even if you dig down into various areas, uh, you know, like manufacturing or into professional services, if you go into uh, health or education, it's pretty clear that the wage increases you've seen have not kept pace with, with this last bout of inflation. I think the real question is how much will the wage gains be in 2020 in 2022? And I think they will be substantial and how quickly inflation comes down so that maybe some of the lost, what economists will call real wage gains, wages adjusted for inflation, which are negative in 21. Will you get some of that back in 22? That's, I think the real question of 2022. And it depends not only on, what happens with inflation in 22, but it also depends on what happens in the labor market and whether whether firms are able and willing to in, increase wages another five six percent and then you know uh, well they got four point seven percent hourly last year in that in right. that Wall Street Journal piece oh no excuse me Washington Post please and then then you might see some some real wage gain but there's no question that that for workers right now they're seeing those wage increases and then they're going to the store they're not only seeing it you know the price of what they want to buy going up significantly but they're also finding like food's not in the store they right. can't even get what they want <laughs> so so you know so uh, uh so you're sort of caught uh, you're sort of caught in in a dual bind here because if you don't pay higher wages you're not going to end up with the food getting into the stores big deal well, part of, that's partly true, and I mean, that's completely true. That's not what I meant to say. That's that's part of what the reason is. The other part of the reason is that some people aren't at work because of uh, CDC guidelines that require people to stay home once they've been exposed, and so people haven't mm-hmm. been able to come into factories. And hopefully, once we get past this big spike in 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 cases, that will disappear. People will get back in, and you'll have a more regular production cycle. But but. With that, though, and this is this is uh, this is also part of this. I mean, that's certainly contributing to inflation, but that's not the only thing contributing to inflation. Labor force um, uh, cost increases aren't the only thing that's contributing to this. There is a large structural uh, component to inflation, which is you know the monetary expansions that have gone on over the last you know ten or eleven years since the uh, since the Great Recession. Well, twelve years, I guess now since the Great Recession. Um, yeah. 13, 13 years, actually. Uh, and, you know, this is the Ben Bernanke expansions. Uh, Politico had a really interesting article about three weeks ago about Thomas Honig, who was one of the uh, was maybe the only dissenter on the Federal Reserve Board to the you know quantitative easing uh, policies of Ben Bernanke and warned that this is the type of inflationary wave that would come about. Also, he warned about asset bubbles. And when it didn't happen, it, when it didn't happen right away, people kind of dismissed him as a crank. How much of that turned out to be prophetic, and what does that say about how long we're going to be dealing with inflation and and what the Federal Reserve is going to have to be able to do to get rid of it? Yeah, well, the Federal Reserve has, has you know, gone from uh, using the word transitory to actually having to bury it within a press conference openly. Uh, the, yes. the entire financial <laughs> press of the United States got to, got to go to the funeral um, uh, of that term. I think the uh, I, I, so what happens now is you've got two major pieces of information that we'll get this week. One, the GDP for quarter four will come out um, probably between five and six percent. 
uh, on Wednesday, and at the in the morning and in the afternoon, uh, you'll have the next press conference from uh, Jay Powell, and uh, he's probably going to end the quantitative easing that started that that uh, Tom Hunnig, that's a great piece in Politico, by the way, uh, really, really interesting. And there's a there's a new book out that sort of ties to that that I, I'm just digging into reading uh, uh, on, on this very question. They have to figure out two things. They have to figure out how to unwind the balance sheet that they have. Because so remember, they before March 2020, the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve, all the assets they had were about $3.6 trillion. They probably will touch $9 trillion sometime in February. Before, and, and, and even then, it will, they're just gonna, they haven't said that they're going to let it run off a little bit yet. They're just, they haven't said anything about that. They've just said, we're probably going to have to do something with the balance sheet. It's maybe not going to be what we did last time, but we're still thinking about that. That's basically what they said. So on Wednesday, he needs to probably say more about that. And then rate increases are likely to happen beginning, we think, in March. So he won't say anything. We don't expect there to be a rate increase this week. But then six weeks later, we expect that the Fed's going to raise rates for the first time since the since the pandemic. And that will be very interesting uh, on a number of grounds. What happens to interest rates everywhere else will be a real interesting thing to watch. Will they raise them three times in 22, four times in 2022? But really, if you could just go back to the Honig point one more time, they don't they don't know yet what they want to do with all those assets that they bought during the quantitative easing that started at the beginning of the pandemic. They're still thinking that through. Beginning of the pandemic or the beginning of, or the end of the uh, great recession? Oh, there's no way they're going to go back to where they were at the end of the great recession. Okay. Cause that would have been a balance sheet of under $1 trillion. It's just, there, there's, there's no path to get back to that. Indeed, the, 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 the street rumorish kind of thing you're expecting is that at the end they'll declare they're done with unwinding the balance sheet at a number closer to six or seven trillion. They won't even go back to the 3.6 that they were at in March of 2020. We're speaking with King Banyan, the host of the, um, the King Banyan Show on KYCR in uh, Minneapolis and a professor of economics at St. Cloud State University, taking your calls at 888-914-9149. Let's go to uh, Ch- Chris in Chandler, Arizona, before we go to break. Uh, Chris, welcome to the show. Yeah, I'd have to respectfully disagree with the professor here. When I took economics in business school, uh, it was not um, anything but labor inflation, which will actually kick off and spark inflation as a whole. So if he wants to keep raising prices on labor to catch up with prices, that, that's really going to be the trigger that's actually going to start inflation. It's not rising prices in gold, rising prices in oil, rising prices in real estate. It's rising prices in, in wage. And once you kick off wage labor inflation, that's going to be the doomsday effect right there. So he is absolutely wrong. I don't understand. This is basic, basic economics. Uh, Chris, thank you for your call. Uh, King, uh, uh, I'll let you respond to that, then we'll go out to break. Okay. Well, very quickly, uh, yes, I agree that once it gets into a wage price spiral, then you've got it really caught up. So let's distinguish between between increases in prices and then increases 
increases in prices versus inflation. Because an increase in inflation, uh, a change in the inflation rate is only going to come from that wage price spiral that is accounted for and is sustained, sustained by monetary policy. That part is correct. But you can get an increase in prices, relative prices for some things versus another. When you have two to three million workers leave the labor force at a time when demand for products is expanding, wages have to go up. It's the only way you can induce people back into the labor force. So, so I, I, you know, I, with all due respect to, to Chris, I, I think I explained that right. And if I didn't, uh, he's certainly welcome to, welcome to come back a second time. But I, I, I thought I'd had, had that explained well. Well, King Banyan, of course, we're going to um, come back after the break, talk a little bit more about some of the other structural issues of inflation and what we can expect from economic metrics, uh, maybe just a uh, short, uh, short period of time. Take more of your calls. I'm Ed Morrissey filling in for Drew. We'll be right back. Today's programming is brought to you by St. Gregory Recovery Center in Iowa. More information about their faith-centered addiction treatment is available at relevantradio.com slash stgregory. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. It's 50 minutes past the hour. I'm Ed Morrissey of HotAir.com, filling in for Drew and talking with my good friend, King Banyan, who is a professor of economics at St. Cloud State University, uh, is also the dean of the School of Public Affairs there. He is a he's the host of the King Banyan Show on KYCR in Minneapolis. And King, we're talking economics. And, uh, it, you know, people are passionate about this right now because... I think we're entering into a paradigm that we haven't seen in decades, right? We haven't really had a, a serious inflationary um, uh, environment it's probably for 40 years or close to 40 years. Uh, and this is, this, it's, it's not just momentary, it's not just transitory, it's been sustained now for several months. And at least for the moment, it doesn't look like it's going to be calming down in, in, in the short term. It looks like we're going to be dealing with this for at least a few months. Um, what is the impact that this has on people who have – where does the impact fall hardest, I would guess, uh, I, I'd, I'd like to ask, in, in terms of inflation? Who's it hit, hit the worst? Well, for the most part, it hits people who lived on fixed incomes the most. So many of your listeners will per perhaps be in retirement and are relying on a, a, a financial plan that provides them with an annuity – they plan their annuity, perhaps for a world where there'd be 2% inflation. Maybe maybe if they, I, I always planned on there being 3% inflation. Um, when, you, when you're facing instead 5, 6, 7% inflation, as you hear, you know, 7% inflation, at least on the headline number this past year, you're going to feel like you're poorer as a result. And uh, I, think that's, I think that's the main impact is that those living on fixed incomes, that's what we used to teach, you know, way back in the 80s when I first started teaching economics. Uh, as you point out, uh, it was in the 70s. It was in the 70s when we last experienced inflation that feels like this one right now. And uh, so we may be relearning some of those lessons. 
Well, I think we're relearning more than a couple of lessons. That was, and again, we talked about the Thomas Honig piece in, in Politico, and he was pointing that out as he was saying, well, we actually learned this lesson about monetary expansion in the early 1970s, and it took several years and a really harsh response from the Federal, Re Federal Reserve eventually uh, to, to finally arrest that inflationary spiral. Um, and I think you're right. I mean, I certainly know that you're right regarding the uh, the assets that the Federal Reserve has, has now acquired with this monetary expansion. It's going to be um, uh, difficult to unwind that. Um, so what other tools will the Federal Reserve have? What other tools does the does Congress have and in, in the executive branch have uh, in order to deal with this? Well, I, I think I think particularly in terms of policy, there needs to be two two things done. First, there cannot be a further expansion of fiscal policy from what's been done. I think I think most observers across the political spectrum now recognize that the American Recovery Plan probably put too much liquidity in the hands of uh, in the hands of citizens at, at one point in time when the supply when supply chains were struggling to keep up with demand already and that's created a real problem so the idea that we might have you know some something in build back better that puts a lot of money in the hands of, of people for a uh, little uh, sugar high during an election season and later this year is a really bad idea and actually makes it makes it worse on the on the monetary side the Fed needs to be simply clear about what what is its goal. When does it think that it's going to start the process of of unwinding that balance sheet? What does it see as being the inflation rate that we'll have for 22? I think it needs to be a. It still lives in a world where if it it thinks it can get back to two percent inflation without having to do anything unusual with some very mild increases. In the in the Fed funds rate, without actually telling us what it's going to do with the balance sheet, there's not enough information out there to make me think that inflation is going to come back to two percent, not even at the by the end of 2023. So I think it needs to be a little clearer about what what it what it's going to do. And you have the perfect opportunity Wednesday afternoon, Chair Powell, to do that. Uh, and I suggest sooner rather than later. You know, the other thing, too, is that we have to remember that by the time Paul Volcker gets into uh, becomes chair of the Federal Reserve, I believe it's 1979 when he when he took over mm -hmm. the chair. And we'd already had this sort of high level of inflation that had been going on for several years. And, and we, we we're not there yet. Right. I mean, that's that's one thing that we should no. remember. We shouldn't we shouldn't be hitting the panic button. This is not 1979. Um, in, for, for, for sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, really, Ed. I mean, if you and think about the fact that we had to raise interest rates over twenty percent for a short period of time in in nineteen seventy nine, and we completely upended the way we do monetary policy for approximately two for approximately three years, so about thirty seven months. And and yes, Volcker Volcker did it. And you know what? No one ever wrote a book about titled Maestro for Paul Volcker. But frankly, Alan Greenspan, for whom that book was written, um, he was a maestro only thanks to the efforts that Greenspan had put in, excuse me, that Volcker had put in place before him. Volcker took the hit. It was really hard. Uh, he was vilified by people for years. But that was for an inflation that lasted seven years. It's a lot easier to change things now. You probably can get back there faster, but but every month of delay, every meeting in which you delay coming up with a solution, risk making the cost of getting back to two percent inflation a lot more 
a lot greater than it would be to do so right now. Well, and, and I think it, it, the, the longer you wait, the fewer options you have, too. And, and mm-hmm. part of this... Part of this is not just on the Fed. I mean, I think we, 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 we tend to do the whole knee-jerk, well, the Fed's got to solve this and the Fed's got to solve that. Really, these are also you know, governing policies that have to adapt to this. And, and so what is it that you see that Congress could be doing? And you've already said don't, don't spend big, you know, don't, don't pass big spending bills. Are there other ways in which Congress can, um, can approach this uh, to – to limit the damage from inflation, to try to to try to help the Federal Reserve sort of draw the monetary, you know, d- you know withdraw that sort of monetary expansion poison as, to the extent that they can out of the out of the economy. Yeah, I think the simplest thing they could do is simply to affirm what they heard the heard President Biden say at the press conference. I know he said lots of lots of things we don't agree with at the press conference, but he said something we should agree with, which is he gave the Fed permission to recalibrate monetary policy to be aimed at inflation first. That has not been there. That wasn't their position for all of 2021. It's a good position. And now what you need is probably congressional leaders, in particular, Democratic leaders, to come forward and say we support the president in his uh, call to the Fed to recalibrate monetary policy. If they said that one simple thing, uh, that would mean that you wouldn't vilify Jay Powell when he comes out and says, I've got to raise rates 25 basis points or I've got to start tapering the tapering the balance sheet. Um, if, he, if people knew that was happening and that there was un, un, unanimity in Washington on that, I think it would help a lot. It does, it, all it takes is some words. It doesn't take, a, it doesn't take an act. You know, we're about a, about a week and a half away from the next jobs report. What do you think? I mean, we've got about a minute, and this is a, incredibly complicated, mm-hmm. but just to, just maybe you can just get a, a, a quick bite in there. Um, where do you see job creation going? What do, you, what, what do you see as the reason why it seems to have been hindered up until this point in time? Well, I, I mean, two things. First of all, the short-term next week's, next week's jobs report is going to be hindered by Omicron. I don't think there's any True. question about that. I wouldn't be surprised if you see a number that's less than 200,000, which everyone will go, oh, my gosh, you know, it's terrible. But the bigger issue is really we've got people who are retired, and you can't see my fingers waving in the air, but people, we've got an extra 2 million people who have retired. About 1.5 million of them are between 55 and 64. Are they really retired, or are they just waiting for something to come out and bring them back into the workforce? And that's sort of the open question for all of 22 is how many of those people who said they were retired and decide to return to work. There really is no other place to bring that workforce back to the level we had pre-pandemic unless you encourage a significant number of them to rejoin the labor force. Yeah, and that's really been the, the whole issue with the great resignation and uh, and, uh, yeah. and all of the all of the attendant issues with that. We're out of time. King Banyan, of course, you can find him at KYCR in Minneapolis and at, at Banyan Show on, on Twitter. I'm Ed Morrissey filling in for Drew. We'll be right back. <laughs> 